0: From the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. My name is Tony Sundermeyer, the senior pastor. I invite you to join in the worship of God.
1: Our first scripture reading comes from the book of Psalm chapter 71, verse 1 to 6. Please turn with me to the page 503 of the Old Testament. Listen for and hear the word of the God. In you, O Lord, I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from my birth. It was you who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continuously of you.
0: Beatrice, thank you very much for reading that. The text that Beatrice read from the Psalms and the text I'm about to read from Jeremiah are part of the lectionary. That the texts that show up today for us to be formed under and shaped under by the grace of God. So listen to the words from the prophet Jeremiah, the first chapter, verses 4 through 10. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I anointed you as a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, truly, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a boy. For you shall go to all whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow to build and to plant. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, Uh, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. One of the great scenes from the Oscar-winning film Chariots of Fire is when Eric Little, the celebrated Olympic athlete from the 1924 Games, is having a conversation with his sister Jenny. Uh, These siblings who are of Scottish descent actually were raised in China, uh, children to Presbyterian missionaries. And there's this great pressure on Eric uh, that he should return to China that he should abandon his athletic career and he should follow in his parents' footsteps and become a missionary and an evangelist. And in one of the most important scenes in the film, Eric conveys to Jenny that he will, in fact, be returning to China to serve as a missionary there. And she responds with... with Uh, exuberance and she embraces him and and she celebrates what in her mind is a very wise and discerning and faithful decision to give up the foolishness and the silliness of competition and athleticism and and athletic games and these Olympics and to really focus on what matters in life and that is mission work and the ministry but to Jenny's surprise Eric has more to say He says to her, I'm going back to China. The missionary service has accepted me, but I've got a lot of running to do first. Jenny, you've got to understand, he says, I believe that God made me for a purpose, that God made me for China, but God also made me fast. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. To give up running, he said, would be to hold God in contempt. To win is to honor God. In Paris, Eric Little won the gold in the 400 meters, and he won the bronze in the 200 meters. He then returned to China to carry out his call to mission work until his death in 1945. He died actually in a Japanese internment camp, of an inoperable brain tumor. He was only 43 years old. I want to ask you a question uh, this morning that sort of sets the rhythm and pace of the sermon. And it's pretty straightforward and, and pretty simple. And the question is, do you buy it? Do you buy what Eric Little is selling? Do you buy Eric Little's call, his his grandiose sense of vocational destiny? Do you buy his conviction that God made him for a purpose? Do you buy it? And I'm not just asking if you buy it for him. What I'm really getting at and asking is, do you buy it for you? Did God make you for a purpose? To even entertain such a question, you really have to believe that there is a God who creates, that there is a God who has created you, and that there's a God who intimately knows you and knows what you've been called to do, that you have to be convinced that you're not an accident, that you're here on this planet living and breathing, loving and and suffering by happenstance or by fluke. There is some design, some intent, some meaning and purpose for your existence and for mine. This sort of undergirds any sense of call, any sense of destiny, any sense of of purpose. And maybe this isn't so much of an obvious connection, but if we are given to that conviction that God has an orchestrated purpose for every creature's life, for every person's life, if we're given to that conviction that God has set us apart for discrete and unique work, or if we're prone to think that God has called us and equipped us and sent us with specific tasks and specific assignments in mind, if we're prone to believe these things, if we're convicted by these things, then we are likely to affirm one of the classic doctrines in the Christian church. We're likely to affirm the doctrine of providence. The doctrine of providence. See, the theological concept of providence promotes the idea that God actually cares about all of creation. But let's keep this in mind. It is not some passive care. It's not some detached care. God's care is active. The doctrine of providence asserts that God is upholding, that God is blessing, that God is preserving everything. All of human history, all events, all of nature, every single creature, everything. And what is more, the doctrine of providence has encouraged people to think about God in terms of God orchestrating all people to fulfill what God once fulfilled in the world, to satisfy the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, the prayer that we'll pray later. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You see, to believe in purpose, I think, or to believe in vocation, or to believe uh, in call, is to believe in providence, that God is orchestrating my life, that God is orchestrating your life, that God is orchestrating the life of the world to accomplish what God wants, to accomplish what God wills. And you see it with the prophet Jeremiah, whose story we will return to later on in this sermon. There is providential purpose enveloping the prophet. God knows him, we're told. God, God knows the purposes to which he has been called, even before it says he was formed in his mother's womb. God will protect him, God will give him the words, and God will deliver him so that God's mission and God's purposes may be realized not just in his life, but that God's will would be realized because of his life, that God's purposes would re- be realized because of his obedience to God to be a prophet. Now, before we get to back to his story and before we go any further, I do want to say something more about the notion of providence. And I want to talk just briefly about Uh, both the relevance and what I would also call the vulnerabilities of the doctrine. The relevance and the vulnerabilities of the doctrine. At its very best, at its very best, the church has formulated theologies and theological ways of thinking and words about God and about who we're called to be in light of the character of God, and they've done this for pastoral reasons I think one of the great disconnects for the contemporary modern church living in the 21st century, it probably even happened to some of you when I said doctrine of providence, you were like, oh boy. Because doctrine doesn't seem relevant to us in many ways. Doctrine doesn't seem to be applicable. But look, the church, when it was formulating its earliest theologies, did so not for academic prowess, not for mental gymnastics, but they did them for pastoral reasons. As the church was emerging in the first, second, and third century, doctrines were born to speak a word to a church in need, a church that needed to know who God was and what God was all about so that they could find comfort and they could find peace and they could find purpose In all of it. For example, a church that is persecuted in the first three centuries, they need to know that their oppressor and their persecutor is not God. And they need to know that God will redeem that suffering and that persecution. Someone who had to to bury a child needs the assurance as they face that deep, dark abyss. They need to know that God is the God of life and death and that God is directing all things for good. A community that's been devastated by a natural disaster needs to know that God is still God over creation and that the created order ultimately serves God's good purposes. You see, it's out of pastoral concerns that theology is born, not academic ones. Out of pastoral concerns so that we together may have words about God, even though they are imperfect but words about God that speak to the situations of our lives, what we face each and every day. And so the doctrine of providence is extremely relevant for our time, just as it was in those first three centuries. But let's also be clear about this. This doctrine of providence also has some vulnerability. And one of the vulnerabilities is what appears to be the reflexivity or the circularity of the doctrine. And here's what I mean by that. If something occurs in the natural world, or something occurs on the stage of human history, or even if something happens in your individual life, hardline doctrinaires might say, well, if it happened, God wanted it to happen. Do you follow? If it happened, God willed it to happen. God was part of making it happen. And this is a rationale that has been with us throughout the generations. It's the rationale that we see in very clear and present ways in our contemporary time. Could it be that this is the very rationale behind a recent comment by the White House press secretary who said that God wanted Donald Trump to be president? Or could it be the rationale of a lone survivor of an automobile accident who said, well, God didn't want me to die. It wasn't my time yet. Or the high school student who says, well I didn't get into that college because God wants me really to go to this college. Or when someone says God gave you cancer or God gave you this disease or God gave you this test to show how faithful God would be and to to prove your faithfulness uh, to God. Or finally, and this is a bit more mundane, when someone says God caused bad officiating so that the Patriots and the Rams could play each other in the Super Bowl because God likes Tom Brady more than anybody. And wanted a rematch of the Super Bowl from 2002. Do you see how this is a reflex of just what we're observing in the world? Do you see how this works in this circularity? It happened, so it must mean that God wanted it to happen, that God willed it to happen. The problem, of course, emerges when we apply simple pastoral sensitivity. Because you could say, what about the cast of Republican nominees and, and Hillary Clinton or the ones who died actually in the car wreck who didn't survive it or the high school student that doesn't get into any college or the one who doesn't survive the cancer or the test or even the Chiefs and the Saints fans as they have to watch the Super Bowl without their teams in it. I mean, did God will those things too? That's the question. If God orchestrates everything, did God orchestrate that? Now many, including this preacher, have been left unsatisfied with this reflexive approach because it makes what I believe to be a flawed assumption about God. And the assumption is that if it happened, then God made it happen. If it happened in my life, if it happened in history, if it happened in nature, then God made it happen. God wanted it To happen. And look, I'm not taking away God's power, far from it, to act in history or to act in and through nature or to act in your life or in my life. God does that, but the question remains does God orchestrate everything? Everything. Is that what we mean when we talk about providence and providential care? Now, obviously, this vulnerability intensifies under the lens of evil and suffering. Because if everything that occurs in history or everything that occurs in nature, if everything occurs in my life or your life has its origin in God's will, it's what God wants, then evil and suffering are also what God wants. Do you see the problem there? I remember as a 16-year-old, I was at my father's funeral and there was a well-meaning member of my Catholic parish who, who said to me, you know, Tony, God needed another angel in heaven. That's why he gave your dad cancer. I mean, even as a 16-year-old, I knew that that was way off. Was he implying that God gave my father cancer, that God had orchestrated that? Not the the men who had developed asbestos. Not them who knew that that it was a risk to, to human health and a danger to the environment. Not then that God was somehow doing that because God needed another angel. God didn't need him. I needed him. And one of the great paradoxes here, and it's it's a space that I'm inviting all of us to occupy in this time. One of the great paradoxes is that the doctrine of providence was and is, as I said earlier, relevant for pastoral reasons. We bring it up for pastoral concerns, but also throughout history, and this is the other side of it, it's been used and abused, badly applied, which has created conversations like the one I had, Situations has created communities that are anything but pastoral. People have literally walked away from God because they've been told that God did this or God did that. God gave them this or God gave them that. Simply, they could not simply reconcile a God who is acclaimed to be good giving someone cancer or causing some natural disaster or, or orchestrating some event that's beneficial to one person but detrimental to a whole community of people. And so over the years, and I've spent a lot of time with my wife, who's also a pastor, who's a theologian, and, and she has helped me in significant ways to come to what I'm about to offer. And it's provisional. It's a conclusion in a provisional way. All of our theology is limited. All of our words about God are limited. There's such a veil of mystery when we're talking about the essence and character of God. But, but at least for now, I want to be able to say this, that not everything that happens in history And not everything that happens in your life or my life, not everything that happens in nature is what God wants. Not everything that happens is what God wills. But I have become convinced that everything God allows in history, that everything God allows in nature, that everything God allows in my life, that everything that happens, God is about the business of redeeming it. That's what I've come to believe. That everything that God allows, God redeems. Let me show how this might work through the lens of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was living during a time of great political and religious peril. Uh, The Assyrians were violently conquered by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians were bent on bringing the same wrath to the whole region, which included Israel and Judah. Egypt was rising up from the south, And they were ready to take on this Babylonian threat, and the people of God were sort of caught in the middle, and alliances and treaties were being made. It was a time of war. It was a time of violence. It was a time of strife. And spiritually, and perhaps because of the the political unease, the, uh, the, the political dissonance of the time, spiritually the people had lost their way. They had abandoned God. They had forsaken the covenant that God had made with them. And God calls Jeremiah to this stage. God raises Jeremiah to speak. He'll be called to weep. He'll be called to chastise. He'll be called to cry out against the people of God for their infidelity and for their trust in these worldly powers instead of possessing a trust in God. And all of this happened. We have the record. All of this happened in real time with real people in real places. This is history. It's history. And so naturally, we could ask, given the theme of this sermon, is this part of God's providential plan? Was God orchestrating these wars? Was God orchestrating this violence and these alliances? Did God turn the people's hearts to stone? Did God do this? Did God facilitate or foster their disobedience? Because it happened. It happened in real time, in real place, and with real people. And to those questions, it's with bold humility that I would respond by saying no. No. And this no is both predicated on and I think in line with the tradition of prophetic ministry. Walter Brueggemann once wrote this. He said the task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception that's alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. You see, the prophet's job, in part, is to say no as a protest against that which human beings have willed and that which human beings have created that is in direct conflict with the will of God. The prophet protests against what the world has become because it hasn't become what God wants it to become. And the fact that Jeremiah's ministry is even possible, think with me around this logic. The very fact that Jeremiah's ministry is necessary says that God's will hasn't been done yet. The very fact there is a Jeremiah tells us that things are broken and things are not right with God's world in the way that God wants it to be. You see, the prophetic ministry then participates in that plan for redemption. That's what it does. And our attention to Jeremiah's ministry, I think immediately, if you were paying attention, I think it immediately draws our gaze beyond it to another prophet. I think we turn to another prophet whose life and death and resurrection was in full service to the redeeming work of God, to this no, to the way the world is. This prophet turned love into an act of resistance against the powers of the world. He was sent to pluck up and to pull down, much like Jeremiah, to destroy and overthrow. And what was he called to pluck up and to put down? What was he called to destroy and overthrow? He was called to do those things to our wickedness, to our sin, and the willful disobedience of the world. His name is Jesus Christ, and he came down to tear these things Tear these things down. But he also came, as the prophet says, to plant and to build the kingdom of God. Here's the big idea of this sermon, and I'll close with this. If we want to feel God's pleasure, if we want to know our purpose and our place in the providential will of God, then we must participate in Christ's redeeming work for the whole world. Not just some private spirituality, but work for the whole world. And we first do that by accepting it in our own lives. To accept that redemption and that forgiveness in our own lives. And then bear witness as we tend to the garden of the world so the kingdom of God may bloom and blossom. You see this purpose plays out in every sphere of our lives. Professionally in our relationships, how we manage our money, our time, our households, how we live in community, how we do church, how we facilitate relationships, And how we use our voice to speak for those who don't have one. All saying no to that which is not part of the will of God, but also saying yes to that which is. And so this call really is a call to live into our prophetic ministry as a church. You know, I get a little uneasy, and maybe you're like me, when when you hear the word prophet, because you know what happens to prophets? It doesn't end well for them. Nobody wants to be a prophet. In fact, pastors, at least for me, I'd much rather be a priest, sort of just blessing everybody and facilitating all the religious rituals and all the liturgies and all the pomp and circumstance that goes even into a day like today. Because that work is, seems to me at least, to be a little easier. But this work that God calls us to is a work of purpose. It's a work that speaks the no against that which is not part of God's will and speaks the yes to where the kingdom of God is emerging. And that ministry is ours. It's all of ours. And so I say to you the words that were spoken to the prophet Jeremiah. Do not be afraid, First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta, for God will not forsake us. Do not be afraid, For God will never leave us. Do not be afraid because God's going to give us the words and the wisdom and the discernment and the grace to live out our true purpose as a church and as individuals, as co-laborers under the providential care of our creator God. May it be so in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all of God's people say, Amen.